So if you have your Bible this morning, you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> this past week, Apple Computer unveiled their new and highly anticipated iPhone. I don't know if you saw the, any of the news coverage about that, but it was a huge deal. And apparently there's this big brouhaha now about uh, what they're going to call it because there's another company who has the trademark on the name iPhone. So I don't know what it'll be when it comes out this summer. It may be iCall or, uh, you know, iChain I, I or iAnchor uh, because many of us today find it absolutely essential to walk around with one of these little gadgets in our hand. And now they've got them to where they're, they're like a mini computer. I mean, I have all my calendar and all my contacts. If, if, uh, if I need to call you, 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 you've got to be in here. And if you're not in here, I don't need to call you. Uh, uh, I can check email. I can surf the web. Uh, I can actually make phone calls with this. But... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, but all the phones, all the cell phones that they've made like this are a little bit cumbersome to use because they have these itty-bitty buttons. If you want to do anything, dial a number. It takes, uh, you know, you have to hold your tongue just right uh, in order to dial the right number because you, you never know who you're going to call when you try to dial this. And apparently they have unveiled this <clears throat> cutting-edge new touchscreen a cell phone that's supposed to revolutionize uh, the cell phone industry. And uh, Time Magazine, it was such a big deal. Time Magazine wrote an article about it, and the title of the article was The Apple of Your Ear. Um, and uh, they're quoting the guy that's the head of design for Apple Computer. His name is Jonathan Ives. And I want you to listen to what he said about this, because... I think in our day in which we live, you know, I don't know about you, but I, quite frankly, when people talk about the good old days and they describe it, I'm thinking, they weren't so good. I mean, you know, some of you grew up, you didn't have air conditioning in your home. You, some of you remember that. Some of you didn't. Did anybody in here not have indoor plumbing growing up? I'll see. Now, again, the good old days... That's a whole different ball game for me. I mean, I like my bathroom uh, in the house. And um, I remember life without a remote. Yeah. Do y'all remember that? I mean, it, you know, it gave, another, it gave you another reason to have kids, didn't it? I mean... You just sit that child up there by the TV. He says, go up there and sit down by that TV and turn that channel for me. And, then, you know, don't move. Stay up there. I, know, I don't want to watch that. Turn it to another channel. So, um, but anyway, I want you to listen to what he had to say about this, this, you know, brave new world that we're about to enter into. When our tools don't work, we tend to blame ourselves for being too stupid or not reading the manual or having too fat fingers. I think there's almost a belligerence. People are frustrated with their manufactured environment. We tend to assume the problem is with us and not with the products we're trying to use. In other words, and here's how the article ended. When our tools are broken, we feel broken. And when somebody fixes one, we feel a tiny bit more whole. You know what he's saying? He's saying the answer to your problems in life 
is a better gadget. It's, it's, a, it's a better thing. And if, if somebody comes along and we use these things and we, we get used to them just because that's the way they've always been made and somebody comes along with this revolutionary new thing, they fix all the problems that, that the old product had, somehow that's supposed to make us feel more whole. And that is the world's approach today. That all our problems can be fixed with technology. I mean, computers are supposed to make life easier, aren't they? Okay, who really believes that? Do you really believe that? Have you ever tried to deal with a computer whose hard drive went down? I, it doesn't make life easier. I, I'm still trying to figure out all my stuff. The believers in Colossae weren't looking at technology to make them feel whole. They were looking at rules. They were looking at experiences. They were looking at sacrifices and some unknown uh, knowledge. Uh, have you noticed today, have you heard the fastest growing religions in America? Do you know what they are today? The fastest growing religions in America. There are two in particular. One is Islam. Which, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, real big on rules. The second fastest growing religion in America today is Pentecostalism. Charismatic movement. Big on experience. So you've got one religion that's big on rules. You've got another that's big on experiences. That's the way you fix your life. That's the way you bring order to your life. Find a standard that you can live by. Or find an experience uh, like a magic pill that you can take. And in the morning, wake up and all your problems will be gone. Now, you may be wondering, well, okay, if legalism and mysticism and asceticism... If they aren't the way I can bring some order to my life, then does that mean that I'm pretty much free to live as I want to? I mean, because if it's not rules, okay, I can do what I want to. If it's not an experience, then it doesn't matter how I feel or what's going on around me. If it's, if it's not sacrifice, then I can just be as greedy as I want to be. Another way we can ask this is, does it mean nothing to be a follower of Jesus. Because quite frankly, as you look around the landscape of American Christianity, that would almost be the impression that you would get, isn't it? Is that it means nothing to follow Jesus. Because in all the surveys they take and all the questions that they ask about how different people live, it, 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 when it all comes out in the wash, there's really very little difference. In the way a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus lives their life, and a person who does not claim to be a follower of Jesus lives their life. Does it mean nothing? Paul's answer in Colossians chapter 3 is, it absolutely does make a difference. Following Jesus does make a difference in the way we live. Not because there's... There's some set of rules, or not because we're running after some experience, but because we've been introduced to a brand new relationship. And that relationship is with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That, and that's what brings order to our lives. And so he's going to say, and he's in this part of the book where it's, the focus is not on what Jesus uh, has done, or who Jesus is, He's supreme, but now the focus is on what Jesus wants to do through us. What does He want to do in us? 
He wants to bring about a change. He wants to bring about a brand new quality of life. And he wants to do it now. And now's really when the struggle is, isn't it? Do you remember before you became a Christian, you know, there was very little. I I don't know about you, but for me, there was very little that I struggled with. I mean, before I became a Christian, there was no, there was, there was no inner struggle about right and wrong. You know, if I wanted it and I felt like I needed it, I just got it. I just went after it. You know, and it started at a very early age. You know, like, you know, toddler age. The kid had something that I wanted. I went to get it. And if he didn't want to give way, I would make him give way. You know, at that age, there was very little difference in our size. I was. And here's the other, the other end of the spectrum is, when you and I stand before Jesus in heaven, there's going to be absolutely no struggle, is there? I'm going to be delivered not only from the penalty of sin, but I'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. I'll, be, I'll have relinquished any, any tug on the power of sin in my life. It'll all be gone. So before I came to Christ, no struggle, not really. Other than getting what I wanted, after I get to heaven, no struggle. But in between, what is there? There's this pull and tug, this give and take, this, uh, this constant battle in how we live our lives. And you recognized it early on in your experience with Christ, didn't you? When you came to faith in Christ... And all of a sudden that temptation came that before there was no thought. You didn't give us a second thought. Yeah, I'll do that. But then after you came to faith in Christ, all of a sudden there's a brand new, there's a brand new life inside. And you began to think, you know, I don't think I should do that. And then, you know, the second thought was, where did that come from? I don't remember that before. Where that came from was the very life of Jesus living within you. And so in this uh, intermediate time between uh, pre-conversion and heaven, how do I bring some order to my life? How do I put the pieces together? How can I affect real change? And that's what Paul is addressing in Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 5. So we're going to look at them. There are four things. I'm going to give them to you very briefly this morning. Number one, Paul says... When I, when I was studying through this passage, I kept thinking about what was going on in Iraq. And here's what he said. He said, first of all, he said, I need to kill my sinful actions. Verse 5 begins. Therefore, that is in light of this new relationship, this new position that you have, that you're seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated. You're, uh, you're setting your mind on things above. Because of that, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. There's some things that you need to put to death. There's some things that you need to uh, bring to an end. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked... When you were living in them. Now to put something to death is, is never a pleasant thing. 
and it is, it's an absolutely radical step. You, you remember when Jesus was in, in um, Matthew chapter 5? Jesus is talking to this crowd that's gathered and he's preaching to them. And Jesus says, hey, if, you're, if your eye causes you to stumble, if it causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, if it causes you to stumble in your relationship with other people, cut it off. Now, if you're sitting there that day and you're listening to this Jewish rabbi, you know, from Nazareth, preach. And he says to you, you know, if you have a problem with the things you're looking at, you need to take your eye out. Aren't you going to think, isn't that a little much? Aren't you? If you're, if you're having problems controlling what your hands are doing in this life and it's, it's causing you to be pulled away from your walk with God, cut it off. I'm, I'm going, you know, I've gotten used to this thing. <laughs> I don't want to lose it. And Jesus, no, anybody that's sitting there would have known he's not calling you to self-mutilation. What he's calling you is to radical action. You see, Jesus knows the devastation of sin in our lives. You know, I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Because Jesus knows the consequences of sin. Radical circumstances call for radical action. Radical approaches. So what are these things, what are these sinful actions I'm supposed to put to death or consider as dead. Immorality? That's... What is immorality today? Well, immorality, according to Scripture and what God says, is sex outside of the marriage relationship. It's God's will that Christians abstain from sexual immorality. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, no one whose life is characterized by sexual immorality would inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in our culture... That's fairly countercultural, isn't it? Because according to the surveys, what do the surveys say? Everybody's doing it. That's what the surveys say, isn't it? Everybody's doing it. He says, hey, not, not for the follower of Christ. You need to put that to death. Sexual um, impurity, evil thoughts and intentions. Passion is the physical side of our desire that's out of control. Evil desire is the mental side of that issue. Greed, the insatiable desire to gain more. It's longing for something that belongs to someone else or placing supreme value on something not yet possessed. All of these things are, are sins of personal aggression. And the person who commits them thinks more of himself than he does of others. Paul gives us two reasons why we need to put those actions to death. He says, first of all, he says you need to understand that, that your sinful actions, they hurt others. My sinful actions hurt others. Verse 6, it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Now, what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's settled disposition towards sin. It's how God... Um, it's how God feels, how God is going to respond to disobedience, to rebellion, to that independent spirit that says, God, I don't need you. 
Paul said it like this in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This, the particular word that Paul uses here in Colossians is often referred to a, to a time that is yet future when, when this settled disposition turns into God's action towards sin. It's a time uh, in the scriptures that's called the, the time of Jacob's trouble. It's often been referred to as the time of tribulation. There's, there's, there's going to be a time when, when those who have uh, turned away from God, those who have said no to God, when God's going to say, all right, uh, enough. God's going to pour out that wrath. God's going to pour out judgment upon the world. It, it reminds us that... that other people get impacted by sin. Other people are impacted by my sin. You know, I, Gwen and I will be married uh, this summer 25 years. Now, granted, it's not 60, but, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get there one, one day in, you know, 35 years. Uh, 25 years. And... And there are a couple of reasons why I'm faithful to my wife. Uh, one, I'm, I'm scared to death of what God would do if I were not. Petrified at what God would do. I also understand that if I were not faithful to my wife, it would not only impact me, but it would, it would, it would hurt her. I, I, I envision the pain that it would cause to her and the pain that it would cause to my sons. To know that their father was not faithful to their mother. And every time I picture that, it's enough. It's enough to scare me to death to say, don't even, don't even begin one step down that path. My sin hurts somebody else. I think about the people that, that look for spiritual encouragement and direction from me in this community. And to think, what impact would it have on them if I were not to be faithful to my wife? My sin hurts other people. You say, ah, I can do whatever I want. I'm not hurting anybody. That's just a lie. That's just not the truth. You're in denial when you say that. No, your sin has an impact, not only on you, but it has an impact on those around you. And that's, a re that's one reason, at least one reason Paul gives, for why I need to kill my sinful actions. Second, my sinful actions were a part of my life before Christ. And that's what he's saying in verse 7. This is the way you used to live. This is the way you used to approach life. But it's not that way anymore. Because you're not that person anymore. Paul said it like this to the believers in Corinth. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you know, you're reading that, you're in the church of Corinth, and you're sitting there, and, and whoever's reading this letter from Paul, they start reading over this list, and you start looking around, and people start squirming. Right? You know why? Because that's what some of them were. They're like, oh, that was mine. <laughs> but then notice what he says. Because see, if you stop there, 
All you get is a discouraging message, isn't it? Negative message. All these people, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You know, sometimes we kind of, we, 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 you know, we've been in church for a while and we try to give this air like we've always had it together all our lives. And that's just not true. I mean, if we think that we've had it together all our lives, again, that's just not true. This is how we were. This is how we lived. This is how we thought. But he says, such were some of you. That, that, that's what you were before God washed you of your sin. That's, be, that's what you were before God set you apart for righteousness. That's what you were before God declared you righteous in His sight. That's what you were before Jesus came into your life. So I need to kill my sinful actions. Second, to bring order to my life, I need to conquer my sinful attitudes. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. And then he lists them here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Anger, it's a deep smoldering bitterness. It's, it's what's constantly under the surface all the time. Wrath is that sudden outburst or eruption of anger. Malice is a desire for ill to befall another. If you have malice towards a person, you're sad when they're successful and you rejoice when they are in trouble. That's malice. Slander is to speak ill of another for the purpose of hurting them. It's destroying another's uh, good reputation by lies, gossip, and spreading rumors. Statements like this that begin like this. Did you hear? Did you know? Somebody comes up to you and says, You know, I shouldn't tell you this. But. Let me give you a response to that. Quit buttoning into other people's business. Abusive speech. It's disgraceful, abrasive, crude talk. And you go, what's that got to do with attitudes? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15? The things that proceed out of the mouth, where do they come from? They come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. What does Paul say we need to do? He says we need to put them all aside. And the, the terminology is... Does some of you have clothes that your friends or your spouse has been trying to get you to throw away for years? You got an outfit, a pair of pants or shorts or a shirt that somebody, every time you wear it, somebody looks at you and goes, you know, you need to burn that. <laughs> right? I, you know, maybe it's old, old uh, gym shorts or, or uh, 
some sweatpants or old t-shirts that, you know, after a while, those things get a little crusty under the arms. Have you noticed that? You know, and they could stand up by themselves. I mean, they're not, you're not going to fold those things at all. And, and somebody looks at you and you go, you know, you really need to get rid of that. That's exactly what he's saying. Take those things out. Throw those things away. Burn those things. Conquer my sinful attitudes. Third, if I'm going to bring order to my life, I need to control my sinful appearances. There's this desire for people to want to see me in a particular way. And sometimes that desire for people to see me in a way that I really am not leads me to tell things that are not true. And so Paul begins in verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed to the true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. I heard about a, a preacher who was walking down the road one day, and he came upon a group of about a dozen boys between the ages of 10 and 12. And the boys were surrounding this old dog. And so he got a little concerned, you know, whenever you see that many 10 to 12-year-old boys standing around a dog, you know, you got to wonder what's going on. So he's, he's, you know, he thought maybe they were hurting the dog. So he went over and and I asked him, what do you do with that dog? And one of the boys said, well, this dog's just an old stray and we all want him, but only one of us can take him home. So we've decided to have a contest. And in our contest, whichever one can tell the biggest lie gets the dog. Well, the preacher was a little bit disturbed by that. So you boys, he begins, you boys shouldn't be having a contest telling lies. Don't you boys know it's a sin to lie? And... He launches into this 10-minute sermonette about the evils of lying. And he brings it to a, a glorious crescendo at the end by saying, When I was your age, I never told a lie. There was dead silence for about a minute. And just as that preacher started to you know think, boy, I've really gotten through to them. Man, I'm really making a difference in these young kids' lives. The smallest boy gave a deep, deep sigh and said, all right, give him the dog. <laughs> Paul's talking about this change that's taken place in our lives that frees us from, from having to pretend to be something or uh, keep up appearances. And, and there's a series of questions that he answers in the passage. Like, when did this take place? It, it took place at our, at our new birth. It took place at our conversion. It took place the moment we said yes to Jesus Christ. That's when we laid aside that old self. Paul described that in Romans chapter 6. What did we get in exchange? If I'm going to put down my old life, what do I get? Paul says, you got the brand new life of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ 
lives in me. Christ lives in me. I don't know about you, but does that just do anything for you? To know that when you said yes to Jesus Christ, a brand new life set up residence in yours. And now, and now all that Jesus is, all that Jesus did, all that Jesus said, all that Jesus thought, all that Jesus felt, all those things are now available in you. And everywhere you go, He is with you. Everything you say, every thought you have, every feeling you express, the, the presence of Jesus Christ is in the midst of all of that. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ in me. Well, is, there, is there like a, a link? Uh, you know, how long does this, this thing take when I lay down my old life and I take up this brand new life in Jesus? Paul says it's a process. You're being renewed. To a true knowledge. What's the result? The result is you're becoming just like Jesus. According to the image of the one who created him. Paul said it like this in Ephesians. This work must continue until we're all joined together in the same faith and in the same knowledge of the Son of God. We must become like a mature person. Growing until we become like Christ. God's goal for you as a follower of Jesus is that the life of Jesus become more and more evident every day. That when people look at you, they, they get more and more an impression that must be the way Jesus would live. If Jesus were in her circumstance right now, that's what he would do. If Jesus were in his position, or if Jesus, if, if somebody had said that to Jesus, that's the way he would have responded. Not only do we become just like Jesus, he goes on to say in verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction. And then he gives these things that naturally cause divisions among people. Like racial distinctions and religious distinctions and cultural distinctions and economic distinctions. And when it comes to receiving a new life in Christ, none of these things disqualifies a person. Does it make any difference where you were born? Does, does that make any difference? Well, not according to God. Does it make any difference what religious tradition you were brought up? Not Jesus... The penalty that he paid, he paid for all who would receive him. Does it make any difference in your level of education or your cultural background? Not according to God. What about your economic status? I mean, you know, not all of us are at the same level. God's given different amounts to different people to manage during this life. Does that make a difference when it comes to being accepted into the family of God? Not according to him. Nor does it mean that you stop being any of these things. It doesn't mean that, you know, if I'm at one economic level, does it mean that after I become a Christian, God will raise me up to another? Not necessarily. You may continue in that level, you know, middle class for all your life. 
if there's a middle class left. <laughs> does that mean if I, you know, does that mean when I come to Christ, you know, if I'm from the south, does that mean that God's going to make me like I came from the north? Not necessarily. And, and amen, vice versa. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be, you know, like a southerner. Doesn't mean that you stop, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you stop being from where you're from. Do you understand? Because see, some people take that to mean, well, you stop being those things. No, you don't, you don't stop being uncircumcised. But he is saying that when it comes to your acceptance before the Father, none of those distinctions make any difference. And then number four, I need to cultivate my spiritual attributes. Verse 12, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. He begins by giving us the reason why we should cultivate these spiritual attributes. He says, God selected me. God picked me. I've, uh, we've been chosen of God. Not only did He select me, God set me apart. God said, you're, you're, you're designed for me now. You're mine. I, I've got plans for you. That's what He means by holy. God loved me. That's why he said, beloved, and God forgave me. And so because God selected me and set me apart and loved me and forgave me, these are the attributes that I need to cultivate in my life now. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. All throughout the New Testament, Paul encourages us on the priority of love. One of the greatest examples that I've heard of recently of a group of people cultivating these attributes in their lives came after a brutal incident this past October. And uh, there was an article written in USA Today about it. It said, on the morning of October 2nd, 2006... A troubled milkman named Charles Carl Roberts barricaded himself inside the West Nickel Mine, Mine Amish school, ultimately murdering five young girls and wounding six others. He committed suicide when police arrived on the scene. It was a dark day for the Amish community, but it was also a dark day for Marie Roberts, the wife of the gunman, and her two young children. On the following Saturday, Marie experienced something truly countercultural while attending her husband's funeral. That day, she and her children watched as Amish families, about half of the 75 mourners present, came and stood alongside them in the midst of their own blinding grief. Despite the crime the man had perpetrated, the Amish came to mourn Charles Carl Roberts, a husband and daddy. Bruce Porter, a fire department chaplain who attended the service, described what moved him most about the gesture. It's the love, the forgiveness, the heartfelt forgiveness they have toward the family. He said, I broke down and cried seeing it displayed. And Marie Roberts was absolutely deeply moved by the love shown. 
You, you listen to an article like that and you go, man, I don't know I could do that. And you're right. You, I, I couldn't do that. You couldn't do that either. But I, I, somebody can. His name is Jesus. He could do that. You remember? Hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus can do that in you and through you. And that's what he wants to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the life of Jesus that's available to each and every one of us. And I pray for that person that's here today that doesn't know that power, doesn't know that relationship, that joy that comes from knowing that their sins are forgiven and they've been chosen by you and set apart and loved and forgiven. And Lord, I pray that today they come to know that. And then, Lord, for for those that are, that are following you, I, I pray that that in our lives we we come to this decision, daily decision, that we're going to cultivate those kinds of attributes, love and compassion and patience and forgiveness and humility and kindness and gentleness. We're going to cultivate the same attributes that were perfectly demonstrated in the life of your son Jesus. Because that's our desire. We want to live like Jesus. So move us as we respond to you right now in Jesus' name. Amen.